Well, good morning and happy Palm Sunday to you all. So good to be with you for uh, one of the great holidays in traditions of the church, the day where we celebrate that triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, where we recognize that Jesus invaded not only a city, but our own hearts and our own lives. And and we see the great celebrations happening all over the world. Still to this day, you could go to the city of Jerusalem and pilgrims will follow the very same path of Jesus down the Mount of Olives and through the Kidron Valley and over around the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. But that also spills over into every church, every sanctuary, every place around the world, whether it be a small rural country church or a big city cathedral. There are opportunities for us to recognize and celebrate the kingship of Jesus as he enters into our lives. And so Palm Sunday is filled with the waving of the branches. It's filled with the celebration of the songs and the chants and the cheers. And what the crowds say over and over again as Jesus enters through the city streets of Jerusalem, they cry out what? That was very much a Presbyterian form of crying out. They cry out. That's a little bit better. A little more Baptist, a little less Episcopalian. Let's try that one more time. The crowds cry out. There we go. Crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And as these chants rise to their fever pitch, What we understand is that they don't just say Hosanna. If we read the rest of the story, it says this. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at more closely. The crowds that went ahead of Jesus and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Don't miss the irony here. Hosanna is a plea. It is a cry. It means, please save us. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means that God is salvation or that God saves. And so we see these things in juxtaposition to one another. The crowds are trying, save us. Jesus, the one who comes in, is the new Joshua, that God is salvation, that they want the salvation, that God provides the salvation himself. So why do they need to add to the son of David. I mean, you could say this is just about geography, right? I mean, the city of Jerusalem, it becomes the city of David, that it was originally Bethlehem, and then when Jesus, when when David turns Jerusalem into the capital, that maybe that's what they mean, but I think there's more here than just geography. When they ask for God to save them, and they cry out to one who is a son of David, I think there's something that we need to find. And in order to do that, we need to look at the backstory. And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And while you're doing that, let me remind you that this year we're in a journey that's called Quest. We've been reading through the Bible in a year, an 11-month journey, where in each month we're looking at a different section of Scripture to experience the whole story of God, that we want there to be a Bible in every hand and God's story in their heart, that we want you to bring your Bibles with you to church, we want you to discover and to see and to turn the pages of God's holy word that's available to each and every one of you. 
So we've gone through all of these different aspects of the journey. We are in the section that, knows, uh, that is known as kingdom. And today we're going to be looking at the first time that the name David is mentioned in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in the first verse. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. And then Jesse called out Abinadab. And had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance, handsome features. And the Lord said, rise, anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully Upon David. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Samuel is a prophet. He is the spiritual leader of the community. And in this part of the story, uh, Israel goes from a variety of tribes into a kingdom that they clamor over and over again that they want to be like all the other nations of the world and so that they want a king. And Samuel reminds them that they're not supposed to have any king except for God above, and they say, yeah, 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 we understand that, but we really want a king too. And God acquiesces and said, fine, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. And so Samuel posts the position to LinkedIn. (laughs) He looks through a variety of profiles, and this guy named Saul keeps popping up. He's got a very impressive resume and track record. He is strong, he is ruthless, he is tall, he's amazing, he's intellectually sound, and he starts out as king, and there's all the promise in the world, and he's a complete disaster. Why is he a disaster? 
Because the one quality that he lacks is that he won't listen. He will not obey the Lord. And so as Saul goes into battle with the troops, God gives very specific instructions. This is about protecting Israel. This is not about increasing your livestock. You're not supposed to take those prisoners in order to hold them as a ransom and sell them for money. And yet Saul does these things. This was supposed to be about protection and defense and about justice. And Saul turns it into unbridled greed. And so the Lord rejects Saul as king. This makes us a little uncomfortable, this language that we read in 1 Samuel, that that the Lord rejects people. This is not rejecting him in his soul. This is about rejecting him. He has disqualified himself in order to be the leader, in order to be the king. And that God must choose another. And so when we find Samuel at the beginning of this story, he's pouting, he's moping. And God has to approach Samuel and say, hey, how long are you going to sit there with your lower lip out about Saul not working? Let me hit a pause button right there. You and I are called to grieve. We're called to mourn when things don't work out. And then there comes a point where many of us get stuck in the whirlpool of our own disappointments. And God has to say, hey, how long are you going to keep doing this? And to nudge us to move forward in faith. And that's exactly what God does with Samuel. The phrase that he uses in the first verse of chapter 16 is he says, fill your horn and be on your way. Now, this is very strange language to us. What you need to understand is that when someone was going to be set apart as a king, they were anointed as a king, and that, that Samuel had anointed Saul as king, but when he had done so, he had used a flask. God gives very specific instructions here. You're to fill your horn. What kind of horn would that be? It would be the horn of a ram. It was a ram that was caught in the thicket so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac, saying that the Lord will provide. And over the history of Israel, it was the ram's horn that was blown as the trumpet at the battle of Jericho where they didn't even lift a finger. All they did was march around the city and blow the horn and the city walls fell. In other words, what God is saying here is, Samuel, I need you to rely on my promises and to fill my promises with the oil of anointing and go on your way. Samuel has to go right through the heart of Saul country. He has to go into the prophet protection program. He's got a really good ruse as to why he is working through there. He marches through. And he finds himself being sent by God to the little town of Bethlehem. Now, don't miss this for a moment. King Saul is the head of the centralized government. Samuel is seen as his 
right-hand man. And even to this day, if you went to a small town in the state of Georgia and the feds come in, how nervous does that small town get? Pretty nervous, right? We don't like it when central government comes into our small town. And so they're like, hey, 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 do you come in peace? And Samuel's like, yes, I am here in shalom. And so they relax a little bit. He's like, I'm here to worship. But his secret agenda is that God has told him that there is a man by the name of Jesse in the town of Bethlehem and that one of his sons will be the next and new anointed king. And so God whispers in to Samuel's ears while each of Jesse's sons is paraded before him. Jesse is a name that means the Lord exists. And if you have eight sons, not counting your daughters, you better believe that the Lord exists because you're going to need all the help you can get. And son by son, they come before Samuel. Amazing, strapping, tall, sharp, incredible. Each time that that Samuel sees one, this is bound to be it. This one's bound to be it. This one's bound to be it. Amazing family. I love how the Bible describes the first three names of the first sons. And after that, the Bible's like, it doesn't matter anymore. And then, and then after the seventh son, Samuel's like, is that it? That's all you got? And Jesse kind of sheepishly says, well, there's the one that's tending to the flock. The Hebrew term is a term for the runt of the litter. And they summon him. And he comes. And he's smelly. And he's dirty. It's the lowliest job, the, the lowest on the totem pole. And we find the heart of the story in verse 7 of chapter 16. Say this with me. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This means two different things. One, we have a tendency to focus on externals. We have a tendency to look at somebody and make a snap judgment and and size them up based on what we see on the outside. But there's another level of what this phrase means. In the original language, there is a play on word. When it talks about David being a man after God's own heart, What that means is that God has set his heart. God has set his affection. God is pursuing the heart of David. We're going to find out in the story of David that David is not perfect. And the whole point of the story is not that David's resume or that his training or his preparation is perfectly put him in the position of that he's going to be the ideal king. It is going to be that he is God's chosen instrument in spite of all that might be against him. The New Testament will pick up on this theme. It will say this in 1 Corinthians. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. David is a man after God's own heart. God's own affection. And I love the way that the Bible, in the intricacy of its storytelling, I love it that this whole story happens in the first 13 verses of this. They keep holding it back, holding it back, holding it back, and they never tell you his name until you get to the very end. And we hear it and we're like, oh, it's David, of course, it's David. But they would have heard it and said, wait, his name is David? Because the word David means beloved. Why is David chosen? Because he's loved. A man by the name of Richard, of whom I'll show you a picture, was born in Brooklyn right at the time of the Great Depression. He was born in a really challenging family. In that family, his mother was verbally abusive, physically abusive. His father was an alcoholic and was absent. One of his earliest memories was of his mother hitting him in the face so many times that his sister had to rescue him. One time when he was at a Woolworths five and dime store. He thinks he was around 10 years old. Richard found a small notepad kind of piece of stationery. He thought it was beautiful in its colors and he wanted to buy it for his mother for Christmas. He had some money that was saved and so he quietly bought it, brought it home and wrapped it, put it under the tree for his mother It was the first time in his life that he had ever bought a present for someone. Turns out on that Christmas when they were opening the presents, she opened it up. She looked at it and scoffed and said, what am I going to do with this? What a waste. And she tossed it to the side. And Richard, reflecting, said, I felt like I had bought my mother the Hope Diamond And she threw it away. And so he wrote this. As I think back on my childhood, the word shame serves as an umbrella. It is a sense of being completely insufficient as a person. The nagging feeling that for some reason you're defective and unworthy. Do you know what that shame feels like? Do you have that gnawing unworthiness that's ever within you. And so as Richard grew up, he ended up enlisting into the Marines. It was the time of the Korean War. And as he went through the conflict and then was coming back and going to enter into the workforce, he had dreams of great success and great fame. And one night, he literally had a dream. And in this dream, he received anything that he possibly could have wanted. 
He had it all. And when he woke up, he woke up saying the phrase, because it was so vivid, there has to be more. And so here you have a lapsed Irish Catholic who doesn't believe in God anymore, who's completely shaken by this dream. And he wanders to find a spiritual director. And the spiritual director says to him, Richard, perhaps the more is God himself. God arrests this young man's heart. And he does a 180. And instead of trying to chase every bit of success and fame and fortune that he can find, he joins the Franciscan order. And as he does so, he dedicates his life with a vow to serve the poor. And yet as the years pass, as he serves the poor, he recognizes that within himself, he's serving the poor not out of the abundance of his love, but out of his own selfishness. That he wants other people to think well of him. He wants God to think well of him. He's horrified by his own mixed motives. And so he goes to talk to one of his superiors in the order. And in his memoir, he writes this. Brother Dominique saw my exit from the chapel and asked me what had happened. So I told him. I told him everything about my disgust with my own motives and my thoughts of walking away from it all. You're on the threshold of receiving the greatest gift of your life, the gift of grace. You are discovering what it means to be poor in spirit. Brother Brennan, Brennan, it's okay to not be okay. When somebody joins a Franciscan order, they change their name. They take on a new identity. The man who was born as Richard became this man as I knew him. His name was Brennan Manning. And when I was around 25 years old, young in ministry, still doing things with student ministry, I went to the National Youth Workers Convention. And before that convention, they had some workshops, some multi-day workshops. And I did a spiritual retreat with Brennan Manning. And it rocked my world. Because while I knew the concept of grace, It was very different to internalize it. Let me share with you the excerpt of a speech that's very similar to one of the ones I heard him give. Let's watch the screens. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. And Jesus says to your heart and mind tonight, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. 
Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, moody, dependent on smooth circumstances, human compassion with mine, for I am God as well as man. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying his gut was wrenched, his heart torn open, the most vulnerable part of his being laid bare. The ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out, whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to his people is come now wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? That with all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. Do you believe that? You've hardly heard it. You've come to church services. But if I put this phrase on the screen and just allow us for a moment to look at it, have you internalized this? Or do you think that God loves you for something that you've done? Or that God's grading on a curve? And you try to do whatever you can with your life to try to orient yourself to be in God's good grace or God's favor. I remember reading a book and before meeting Brennan Manning and and experiencing part of what he says when he puts it like this. Unlike ourselves, the God of Jesus Christ loves men and women, not for what he finds in them, but for what he finds in himself. It is not because men and women are good that he loves them, nor only good men and women that he loves. It is because he is so unspeakably, unutterably, unimaginably good that the God and Father of Jesus loves all men and women, even sinners. He does not detect what is congenial and attractive and appealing and then respond to it with his favor. He initiates love. His love is creative. It originates good rather than rewarding it. And that is why St. Augustine could write those lyrical lines, in loving me, you make me lovable. And so a king comes into Jerusalem and people in the midst of their brokenness cry out, save us, save us, save us, son of David. 
son of belovedness. That the king is a shepherd and that salvation will come not because of our heroics but because of our humility. That salvation will come not because of our victories but because of our vulnerability. That salvation will come and it will not because, be because of any beauty within us. It will be because we are beloved that God has set his affection on us. People look at the outward appearance. God sees right to the heart. Here's the formula. We Christ save us. God is salvation has come. And the reason that he's come is because we're cherished. We're beloved. That's what happened on Palm Sunday. It's still what happens. Let's pray. God, will you enter into our lives in the same manner that you entered into the city of Jerusalem that day? For the person who would cry out quietly for you to save them in the depths of their souls, Forgive us for clamoring for other kings. Forgive us for being like other rulers who will not listen. And so, Lord, as you anointed David and Jesus, will you anoint us with the horn of your victory and salvation that we know that you exist and that the king is a shepherd and that the shepherd is a king. May we no longer look at the externals of things of this world. May we know that you are pursuing our heart. And so help remind us that even though we are not as we should be, you cherish us. And that just like David, you call us beloved. Beloved.